Our Old Covenant reading this morning comes from Psalm 25. This is is the Word of God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am alone and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violence and hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness Preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Our New Testament reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. and John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace, Upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
The grass withers and the flowers of the field, they fade and they fall. But this, the word of our God from Psalm 25 and John chapter 1, it endures forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come this morning that you would shine your light upon us even as you have shown Christ into our hearts. We ask, Lord, that by your Spirit you would illumine our hearts that we would see your Word in order that we would see Christ brilliantly. And Lord, that you would take that truth and implant it deep into us that it would bear much fruit by the working of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. We'll be looking for this, at, uh, for this morning's sermon at John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. And this morning we come, it's Christmas Eve. We're thinking about the incarnation of Jesus, right? We come to focus our attention upon the Son of God who took on flesh, the Savior of the world. And we do so amid the festivities that accompany this joyous time of year. Right? Christmas can be a, a time of great anticipation, especially as children, right? Waiting for the joys of the season. But sometimes as we grow, as we get older, the anticipation can be accompanied by disappointments. Now those disappointments as a kid can be somewhat trivial, right? Grandma buys you a red sweater, but your favorite color is green. Or they can be more heartrending. The time with family and friends didn't go as you had hoped. Or maybe the ones that you would have loved to celebrate with are no longer here. But as we focus our hearts and our minds upon Jesus and His coming, we need to see that there is no disappointment to be found in Him. There is nothing lacking in the Father's gift of Christ. As John begins his Gospel, he makes clear that with the coming of Jesus, the anticipation and expectations can never be overdone. You can never over-anticipate or over-expect from Jesus. Because with Jesus, there's no letdown. For in Him is the fullness of grace and truth. There's four things for us to see here this morning as we look at this text. First, Jesus is... The Word become flesh. Jesus is the Word become flesh. Second, Jesus is the full measure of grace and truth. Third, Jesus is then the source and supplier of grace. And finally, fourth, Jesus gives us the fullest revelation of God. Jesus is the Word become flesh. John's Gospel, as we see in the first few verses of chapter 1, doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. We heard that last week. 
but instead takes us back into eternity, giving us a glimpse of the glory of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So that in our minds, when we come to verse 14, we need to be contemplating the only begotten Son of God. We need to be contemplating in our minds God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. John designates the Son as the Word. And as we look at the previous verses, we see that the Word is coexistent with God and is God. And the Word we see in verse 3 created all things and sustains all things. The Word shines forth the truth. And the Word acts in omnipotent and immutable power. And yet we see something extraordinary in verse 14 as those things are in our mind. We see something extraordinary. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. The son of God, all glorious, took to himself at a particular moment in history. There was a time when Jesus, the Son, did not have a body. Yet in the fullness of time, He took to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He became man. Not to the exclusion of divinity, but added to Himself a true human nature so that He is both now and forevermore both God and man in one person with two distinct and complete natures. Now the Son did not become flesh because there was something insufficient or something unfulfilled in Himself. Right? He is the self-existing One. He has fullness of Himself. It's His very nature. He is the I am that I am. But He became flesh not for His sake, but for ours. He became flesh to save His people from their sins. Using the term flesh, John is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus entered into the throes of human life in its entirety. It's not just that the Son took on a, a body. It's that He became flesh. He came where we are and does the things that that we do and faces the trials that we face. This is glorifying and it's glorious and it's humbling. And we dare not look at the incarnate Son of God lying in a manger and think, cute. This is not a sentimental moment. In John 1.14, the Word became flesh, not to be a baby, right? The Word did not become flesh to be a baby, but to be like us in every way, yet without sin. That He could live the life that we should have lived, and that He could die the death that we should have died. The incarnation, brothers and sisters, is not the gospel. The good news is is not that Jesus became a human, 
But the good news rests in what Jesus does and did in taking on our flesh to redeem us from sin and death. The glory that John is talking about is not beholding simply the incarnation. That's not the glory that we have seen. Because really, that's a veiled glory. That's a glory that that nobody seemed to recognize. And John, for the first time, really sees it on the Mount of Transfiguration. When he sees for the first time the unveiling of the flesh of Christ to see his glory shining brightly. And even more brightly, he sees it in the entirety of Jesus' ministry culminating in the resurrection from the dead. And it's that salvific purpose that served an ultimate end that the Apostle John gives us a glimpse of here. The Word became flesh. And what? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us. God in Jesus comes to dwell with His people. We'll flesh this out a little bit more in a moment, but I want to remind you of the goal of the, of the telos of history, which the Apostle John tells us in Revelation 21.3, as he reveals the consummation of all things. He says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he brings that goal to pass. Because as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. He he became flesh. And in doing so, becomes for us the fullness of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John the Baptist was the last prophet from the former administration under the old covenant, who prepares the way for the Lord himself. John the Baptist, we see in the Gospels, was a forerunner, but not simply a forerunner of another prophet. Not simply a forerunner of a new king in Israel. We're told in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 that he is the forerunner preparing the way for God himself. Malachi 3.1, we looked at this last week. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. John the Baptist is preparing the way for what is called in the Bible the day of the Lord. In some places called the the great and terrible day of the Lord. Because it anticipates God's visitation. And as sinners, what can be expected on a day when God comes? 
judgment and wrath for sin. That's what can be expected for sinners when God comes. But what we see in Jesus, the Word become flesh who dwelt among us, that He came full of grace and truth. See, when Jesus came into the world, He did not come with His winnowing fork in His hand. He will, judgment will come, but first... But first, in becoming flesh, the Son came to extend to sinners grace and truth. When the Lord Jesus came at the climax of history, at the changing of the ages, the I Am did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, John 3.17. See, the Apostle John here is making an important redemptive historical contrast. He records the words of John the Baptist here in verse 15, speaking about Jesus. He says, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Here, John the Baptist's words make a contrast between himself and Jesus. Which is a contrast between the provisional and the fullness. Between the finite and the infinite. Between the temporary and the eternal. Between the shadow and the reality. John is saying that upon the pathway of life in history, both in birth and in public ministry, Jesus had come after John the Baptist. Jesus was born after John the Baptist. Jesus started his ministry after John the Baptist. Yet Jesus, who was behind him in time, got ahead of him because Jesus ranks above John the Baptist in power and glory. The Baptist reasoning in this regard comes down to the logic of the Apostle Paul's argument beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. Christ outranks the Baptist because, as verse 15 says, he was before me. He existed from all eternity as the Word of God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And then this contrast is brought up again in verse 17, comparing the giving of the law with the coming of Christ. And we need to understand that this isn't a contrast between bad and good. It's a contrast between good and better. Infinitely better. This is the same way that the book of Hebrews contrasts the old economy of the old covenant with the new. Again, it is a contrast between the shadow and the substance, between the provisional and the permanent, showing forth the superabounding grace of the Lord, supremely manifested in the person and work of of Jesus, who is the full and final revelation of God. And in his gospel, John is unveiling for us the fullness of grace manifested in Christ himself. And so John the Baptist here marks a turning point as the last prophet of the old order and establishing a framework for the rest of the gospel where John 
shows Christ shining forth as the fullness of grace and truth. Now, if Jesus is indeed the fullness of grace and truth, if, if what is dawns in Jesus is something new and something glorious and the fullest measure of what God has to redeem His people, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us that Jesus is the full measure of grace? Look at verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon Grace. You may have a footnote there that provides an alternate translation. It could be translated grace in place of grace. The law was given through Moses, verse 17 says. The law, as we know, is an administration of the covenant of grace. To be sure, there was much grace under the law. But the whole of God's grace in redemption was never known until Jesus came into the world and died for sinners. You see, were the law sufficient, Christ would not have needed to come. But the law was a preparation for what would come in Christ. And there's nothing wrong with the law per se, right? As the psalmist says in Psalm 19:7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple which is echoed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.14. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. For the law revealed God's good. And he's holy. And he's righteous. It revealed man's lost condition. And it foreshadowed his redemption, even in the sacrifices. But what the law did not provide was the power to obey it. What the law did not provide was the supply of grace needed so that sinners could be pardoned and helped in his time of need. The law could not justify. The law had no healing power. Even the Old Testament believers who received mercy, grace, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, all the benefits that we too receive by Jesus, they receive them on account of Jesus. On account of his fullness that was provisionally provided for them in anticipatory types and shadows. They only saw Christ from afar, not face to face. But their salvation, of course, was only possible through the sacrifice of Christ to come. As God in his forbearance passed over former sin so that at the right time Christ would come to redeem his people from all ages. Now we can sometimes use the word grace but not know what it means. Is grace just a good thing? What is it? See, grace is unmerited or perhaps better put demerited favor of God in the place of merited wrath. God is gracious to us in the Lord Jesus and it is wholly undeserved from our side. That's the nature of grace, that it is completely undeserved. We do nothing to earn it. We do nothing to justify God's giving us grace. Yet this grace we find here 
in Jesus is overflowing. It fills our emptiness. And that grace comes to us because Jesus obeyed perfectly what we in our sin could not. And the sacrifices under the law made temporary provision for sin. But they could never themselves take away sin forever. Those sacrifices pointed forward to the final sacrifice of Christ who paid for sin once and for all. Hebrews 10, 12 tells us, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Salvation comes as God in Christ comes to us in our weakness and in our emptiness, frail and needy. And what comes to us by faith in Jesus is a life of grace followed by grace. A life of grace replaced with grace, replaced with more grace. He has given us past grace. Think about it. Past grace and effectually calling us to himself from the dead. And he gave us life. Right? He gave us past grace as he worked faith in our hearts by his spirit. He made us acceptable before God by justifying us. He broke the bonds of sin that had held us. And death, which laid claim to us, was broken when we were born again. He gives us not only past grace, but, but our lives are characterized in the present by grace, followed by grace. He gives us present grace as he's seated at the Father's right hand in heaven, ever living and interceding for us. He, he hears our prayers. He pleads for us before his Father. With his Father, he sent forth the Holy Spirit. And by His Spirit, He gives us more grace as He comforts us, as He encourages us, as He gives us strength in our battle against sin and our battle against temptation and our battle with whatever circumstances we find ourselves in that seem insurmountable. We are reminded again and again that He bestows upon us His good graces. And we receive them. And He applies them to our hearts. So it's not just words that Jesus loves you, but it resonates in our hearts because He dwells with us and confirms it to us. Not only that, not only in the past, not only in the present, but in the future He promises us grace. That He will meet our every need and He will bring us safely to glory. Right? That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That wherever God in his wise providence may be leading you in this life, he'll be there. He will dwell with you. And he's going to supply your every need 
And he is going to lead you by streams of quiet waters, even through the valley of the shadow of death. And finally, he will welcome you into your promised rest, united with your Savior. He will, in all things, give grace. And then follow up that giving of grace with more grace. And when you think that you've used it up, when you're sitting there and thinking, how could God love me any more after this? Then comes yet more. Grace followed by grace. Brothers and sisters, what we need to see is that there is an an inexhaustible fullness in Jesus' grace towards us. He cannot be overestimated and cannot let us down. It is impossible. But how often do we fail to take hold of God's grace in Jesus by neglecting those ordinances of Christ by which He promises to bless us and to bestow His grace upon His people? Oh, the treasury of grace that that exists for us. It is full beyond measure. Christ has an endless supply to give us, to strengthen and to nourish, to encourage and to comfort us, to to pull us back from sin, to to grant to us repentance. Right? Repentance is is a gift of God's grace. When we turn from our sin, that's a gift of God. When we desire God, it is a gift of God that we would desire God. Grace to make us persevere through all that we face in this life. May we not be slow to make our needs known to our Savior. May we speak and plead and cry out to God as the psalmist does in Psalm 25, asking the Lord that He would come and that He would redeem Israel, that He would redeem us finally and fully, and that He would bring us to glory, and that we would be satisfied in the depths of our souls with all that He has for us in Christ our Lord. May we not be those who waste our time trying to fix ourselves and trying to fix our circumstances before we reach out to Him as a last resort. May that not be the way that we receive the fullness of His grace. And finally, number four, He has given us the fullness of truth. The fullness of grace that we have comes with the fullness of truth. Surely the law revealed God to his people. Right? He said to Moses in Exodus 34 that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. But the fullness of God's truth, 
of who God is did not come until Jesus came into the world. For Jesus has revealed to us the Father. Remember, Moses on the mountain was only permitted to see his back. Jesus sees him as he is. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made the Father known. That Greek word that we have as uh, made him known, revealed, carries with it the idea that he has expounded the Father. That, that Jesus to us exegetes God. He explains the Father to us. See, Jesus is not coming and revealing something new, but rather expounding God to us in the fullest measure possible. He reveals the fullness of truth of God. Because Jesus is, in fact, the supreme and full revelation of God. Think about Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Because He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the Father's nature. These verses in Hebrews help us to see the relationship in John 1 between verse 17 and 18. That contrast that is coming between the provisional and the final means of revelation. Provisionally, anticipatorily, through the prophets in the Old Testament, and then supremely. In these last days, in His Son, the Word of God made flesh who dwelt among us. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Right? John 12, 45, And whoever sees me, sees Him who sent me. If you want to see the Father, if you want to know what God is like, look at the Son. Look at the Son who reveals Him perfectly. Reveals His nature and His character. If you want to know the truth, if you think that truth is something that we can't know, that it's unknowable, John tells us all we have to do is look to Jesus. That's where the truth is found. Because there is no true knowledge of God apart from Christ. Or we don't base our knowledge of God on our own thoughts or our own opinions or our feelings, but upon God who has revealed himself through Christ. Now, do you believe that God is loving? Why? Don't believe that God is loving based upon wishful thinking or your imagination, but, because, but, but upon the revelation of God's love in Christ. Where we see that manifested in the cross. Where the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Do you believe that God is powerful? Don't depend on your own baseless hopes, 
but upon God who in Christ became flesh and died for your sin and rose again from the dead with power as he conquered your sin and death and then applies that to you by the working of his Holy Spirit. And maybe you're here today and you've not received this grace and truth of Jesus. Let me, let me remind you that Christmas is not about a cute little baby. It's about God humbling himself to come into this world to save sinners. And so I urge you to act upon what you've heard today. That Jesus is full of grace and truth. That he is ready and willing to forgive your sin. And that fullness... What that means is that grace is greater than all of your sin. And he will change your heart. And he will give you the riches of his blessings. And what is required from you to receive the fullness of grace and truth that God has sent for us is that you know your own emptiness of sin. That you know your need of him. And that you trust him by faith. There's many truths that we learn from Jesus in particular. But the fullness of truth is found supremely in what Christ has done for us. Right? The truth is that God so loved the world that He sent His Son. The truth is that Jesus left the glory of heaven to come to the miseries of this earth. The truth is that Jesus came to save sinners because the truth is that we were dead in our sin and stood condemned. The truth is that Jesus gave His life on the cross to redeem you from death and gives to you eternal life so that the truth is that the superabounding grace of God in Christ never fails and it never ends and it always assures us that we are indeed the children of God now and forevermore and that we have an inheritance in and with him that is imperishable and is unfading and is being kept in heaven for us. And it is through this life, your life, my life, that he shines the light of truth to guide our steps, to direct our ways, even as the psalmist in Psalm 25 asked, that he would teach us to observe all that he commanded. The truth, brothers and sisters, is that His grace and truth is the greatest gift we could ever receive. That's what John wants us to have through his gospel. To know and to believe the truth and have life by His name. Because there is nothing there to disappoint. In Him we have the greatest blessedness and reward, for He is ours and we are His, and He is with us always, even to the ends of the age. 
So when you wake up tomorrow morning, and maybe the sweater is the wrong color, let that be a reminder of the fullness of grace and truth that is yours in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the fact that Christ has come. We rejoice in the fact that He has come to redeem us and that He bestows upon us the fullness of grace and truth that You wish Your people to have. Lord, as we consider these things, would You plant this deep in our hearts that we would make use of it, that we would avail ourselves to Your means of grace, Lord, that You would build us up And that you would give us strength for the journey of this life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.